As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Culture Calculus. I'm Jason Jones, and as always, I'm joined by Kavitha Davidson, culture writer for The Athletic. We'll be joined by author Kate Fagan, whose new book, All the Colors, came out and details her relationship with her father that was forced by a love of sports, how it changed, and how they reconnected as he battled ALS. All right. Well, I'm really happy to introduce Kate Fagan to the show. Kate and I used to work together at ESPN. And before that, I was a very longtime fan. Um, Kate, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a good day here in Charleston, South Carolina. Is it beautiful? It's beautiful if you love heat and humidity. Sure. So, yes. <laughs> Now, you know, we're, we're in the middle of Pride Month, and we're also coming up on Father's Day, and you've written this really beautiful, very personal book um, uh, about, about your dad. And, you know, I'm, I'm really um, kind of honored that you're willing to talk to us about it. So first, can you just talk about, you know, what made you want to kind of quit your day job and go to work on this, on this book? This seems to have been a, a labor of love for you. Yeah. It, it's definitely the, the piece of writing that I poured the most of myself into. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I left ESPN, I had no idea the book would ever be a thing. I left, I left because I knew I needed to be with my dad. And that year, the first year after I left ESPN, I spent helping my mom care for my dad, who was at that point, we, we couldn't, we, we didn't know how long he would have, but we could tell that his, he had been diagnosed with ALS and we could tell that it was getting worse and worse rapidly. And so that, that first year after ESPN, I just, I just knew that I, I couldn't keep making the decisions I'd made at ESPN and it had nothing, it didn't, those decisions weren't about ESPN. They were about anyone on some sort of like success ladder or big company and convincing themselves that that was the, the end all and the be all that, that, that just wasn't working for me given the relationship my dad and I had had when I was growing up. So the, the, the book really came as a byproduct as after my dad died, talking to my mom and, and feeling like I had something to say both about leaving ESPN about the relationship we had had and about what we had found at the end of his life. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you wrote, you know, very candidly about some of the guilt that you had felt um, about, you know, not spending as much time with him, especially when your professional career was burgeoning, um, as, as you probably would have liked to. I think that's something that a lot of kids can relate to that we don't, max, especially in the last year, you know, when we've kind of been confronted with the fact that all of our days are, are probably more numbered than we'd like to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, was, was writing this book cathartic in confronting some of that guilt for you? I feel like I wrote the book in large part to remind myself of the love and the childhood we'd had. And, and there was probably a piece of what you're saying about writing the regrets and the moments that you wish you'd done differently. And maybe in the writing of them, you take away some of the power. I think anyone who's used writing as a, you know, creative medium in any way in their life knows that, you write often just to make sense of the jumble of ideas in your head. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that also includes the jumble of emotions in your heart. And for me, it was both of those things, like things, decisions I'd made that felt very like cognitive, intellectual, like practices. And then also that swirl of, did I do the right thing? Did I do right by him? Did I, did I show up enough for him? All of that. I was trying to make sense of all of that in our very own specific way, meaning like the relationship I had with him was so specific, you know, the specifics of a Riptide Rush Gatorade from Stewart's convenience store in upstate New York. But in that, that relationship that was us and in those details that were unique to us, I hoped that that thing that happens where people take the universal out of it, I hope that that, that would start to happen for people, even if the details weren't mapping one-to-one, that the emotion of it would, would have them conjure that same thing that had happened in their life. Right. This was obviously much more personal writing than what you tend to do professionally. Um, and, and, you know, while your first book was incredibly emotionally written, um, you know, wasn't a personal story of yours, how different was this process for you mentally, um, you know, to go through the, the, the actual, you know, physical motions of writing? There, and, and you know this from, from being a reporter and a journalist yourself, and that there is both comfort in being a journalist and relying on someone else to supply the core of what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you're bringing your own perspective on those facts and those quotes and, and their place in the world to that piece. But there is something very comforting in knowing that like you can call numerous people and gather all of this information. And then your job is to shape it in a, into a coherent whole. And that was not this book that, that this book was not, I did not make a phone call. Maybe I called my mom a couple of times just to, to ask her about a memory, but otherwise it was me alone, very alone mm-hmm. with the, the love that I had for my dad and the childhood we had together and making sense both of who I am and the decisions I'd made and what those meant and what they meant for both what they meant for who I had been and who I wanted to be. And so it was very, I think the easiest thing to say would be it was lonely, but it wasn't lonely. Mm -hmm. It, it was just very real. I know that doesn't even seem like the, the right, 
way to say it, but it feels right in this moment that it, those, those months writing this book were some of the most anxiety-free, settled, confident, connected I've ever had because I was doing this thing. I wanted to be doing this thing. I knew it was the right, it's like, it was like this universe aligning thing for, and I don't feel it still, right? The world is opening up. I, I stopped working on this book a year ago, but when I was working on it, I had this acute sense that I was doing the right thing at the right moment for the right reasons. And I don't think that happens often in life. Right. The bond that you had with your dad, I mean, he was a, a basketball player, you were a basketball player. It seemed that he informed so much of who you ended up becoming and the person that you ended up shaping into. How does that, how do you look back on that? Is it possible to look back on that? I guess, objectively, it's not really the right word, but you know, with clarity of the lens when you're trying to work on a project like this? I think clarity... I was clouded in the writing of this. I think the the parts of the book that are about growing up in the 90s and basketball and the lessons he taught me that were very much grounded in basketball, but that I think are relevant to life outside of just the, is it 94 feet? That's right. I think, I think a basketball court is 94 feet. Um, those, I think, are really weighed down with nostalgia. And But I think that because of the closeness of when I was writing about his, when I was writing about his death to his death, mm. there were, those, those parts were only like four to five months apart. Like moments I'm writing about happened four to five months before I was writing about them. And I think that there's a question there between, you know, the Margaret Atwood quote about like the story isn't a story at all. And it's like a shipwreck and you're on the ship until later when it looks like a story. Mm-hmm. I both, I both see the point of that. And I, and I understand that it can only be through years later where you really fully understand something. But for me, there was something very ne- necessary about writing about these interactions and moments we had so close to when they happened and feeling like I could, I could still live in the emotion of them. And I, and I, and I think, I hope that means that when people read them, they feel the emotion of them and there is no distance between, and I didn't want there to be distance between the writing of it and the experience of it, because I hope that it packs a ton of emotion in it because I'm writing it with so much emotion because it's so fresh. Right. Yeah. You know, when you, you start to kind of wane, I guess, in your own personal connection to playing basketball, how does that, what kind of an impact does that have on your relationship with your dad um, and kind of the way that, I guess, you, you see yourself either in his image or as, you know, becoming your own individual person? How I started to feel about basketball in particular and sports in general, was it, and, and the, how I was feeling about them in, in both cases was just a, a falling off of love, a decrease. I just couldn't figure out what their place was in my life anymore in the way that I had so easily when I was growing up with my dad and just falling in love with the game and you're getting to know it. And when I, so I played at the university of Colorado and it in the middle of my career there, I just, 
I just kind of had this one season where I was like, well, I am done with basketball. I just couldn't, it, it wasn't serving me the way it once had. And I think this is, this is something that a lot of athletes go through that we don't talk a ton about. And I, and I wrote about it in my first book, what made Maddie run just trying to acknowledge that even when I was at ESPN and, and maybe you've had this experience in talking to you know professional athletes at various points, they go through periods, even are the most famous professional athletes we can name. Like they go through seasons where they, they're not into their sport. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but of course they're still working at it and they're still showing up for it. Just like any relationship, relationships with sports can fluctuate, fluctuate and have their seasons. But I don't know that a lot of athletes, especially young athletes realize that that's an okay thing to go through because we have all of this messaging where it's like, well, it's sports and it's fun. And you should just be so grateful that you could do something like this. If you are playing at a high level, it's like, right. and for me, I went through this where I, I fell out of love with basketball And this is completely in comparison to my dad who played pro ball, played college ball, played pro ball. And then when he came home from playing overseas, like he would play every day of the week if he could, whenever he could find a good game, he was playing. And I was not like that. And, and so this, this game that had formed us and formed our relationship. And like, as I write in the book, it was the driving force of what we were doing, when we were doing it, who we were doing it with. Like it it was, we built our lives around this car rides Gatorades, all of it. It was all what we did. And when I stopped loving the sport as much as he did, and I wanted to focus on other things, it just pulled away all of this time that we would have spent together. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of, I think what's, I think what's interesting about the book is that it's a father daughter dynamic where mm-hmm. this is happening. And I think that's, that's probably happening more and more post title nine that like, girls and dads have this connection through sports and then what happens when you get older and that connection still isn't there. I'm trying to explore all of that in this book because it really affected us. It affected us that I stopped watching the Mets. <laughs> I know you're, you're going to be pretty upset at me that I don't watch baseball. <laughs> Cause I know <laughs> it's your, your go-to. I get um, it though. <laughs> like, yeah. All of that affected us. Cause it was, it was how he wanted to spend his time. It's what he loved talking about. It's what he loved doing. And all of a sudden I was like, just interested in other things. And we didn't know how to connect over other things. And I don't think, yes, that was specific to us. But I think that that's, whether it's sports or something else, I think, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a a good parent-child relationship, like life is, no matter how good it is and no matter how great people are, like life is going to have its way. (laughs) And you are, that is, that relationship is going to get fractured and dented along the way. And that's certainly what I experienced with my dad and and basketball had a lot to do with it, the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City. 
with David, a sculptor, and his wife Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son Evan continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Well, and, and, you know, whether you're talking about sports or not, you're just not the same person at 20 that you are at 10, or you're not the same person at 30 that you are at 20. And I think for both parents and children, it can be difficult to um, adjust to those adjustments, adjust to the fact that people evolve in what they're interested in and and who they are. Um, And that the nature of the relationship might evolve with it without necessarily the strength of the relationship changing. One of the like really beautiful things about this book is also, you know, you talk, you, you write very frankly about some of the fears that you had in coming out to your dad, which is obviously a huge part. It's who you are. Um, and, you know, from what you had talked about earlier about changing, um, you know, the changing dynamics of your relationship. What was that process like you coming out to your mom first um, and hesitating to come out to your dad at first? Yeah. Well, I, that was a huge turning point in our relationship. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, but I was playing basketball for the, for the university of Colorado when I came out to my mom and I you know, I was, I was probably about 20, 21 and I'm, I'm sharing my age already to prop up as an excuse for my behavior. So let's be clear about that. <laughs> um, and I didn't even explicitly ask, you know, I didn't have a conversation with my, with my mom after coming out to her where I was like, if, you know, can I have some advice on how to talk to dad? I wish I could say that I had been that respectful and, and, and had that much foresight, but I didn't, I didn't even ask my mom how we were going to tell my dad or she didn't ask me. No, I think she might've said like, are you going to tell your dad? And I think I just kind of made, made it clear that the burden was on her. Mm-hmm. And I, I never, I mean, I, up in, I mean, he's not with us anymore, but I don't think I ever came out to my dad. Obviously information. I mean, I got married to a woman, so that was clear that, that, that I was gay, but I don't think that I ever said to him, Dad, I, I want you to know that I'm gay. I think he got the information secondhand. We never really talked about it. Then we kind of had a period of time where it was a don't ask, don't tell happening in our home. I don't know if I was responding to energy or if I was creating the energy of don't ask, don't tell. Um, so it was a huge turning point for us. And I'm, I'll never be clear because it wasn't important enough for me to like bring up towards the end of his life. I'll never be clear if in those years he was really disappointed in me that I didn't trust him. Mm. That was a huge, I do believe that was a huge part of it. Or if he was actually disappointed that I'm gay, it was a different time. It was like 2003 when this happened. So my, my hindsight is that it was probably a combination of those things, Mm -hmm. but it really, that, that lack of trust. And I think that's something that a lot of, um, people who come out can, can relate to is that your behavior, your behavior as you're dealing with understanding who you are and like 
you, you're not sure you want people to know, like you, you go through this period where it's almost inevitable that you're going to like a lie at some point or lead people astray because you're living one life and you don't want them to know. And the long-term ramifications on that, like I, that's one thing I wish now that my dad's gone, that I had been more proactive about, about curbing the long-term ramifications about talking about that because I think the more I learned and the longer I've been out and been in this world, that like the, the trust piece goes a long way toward dampening whatever, you know, whatever homophobia or whatever struggles someone might have. If you really trust them and show them that you love them, like that you will overcome a lot with, with the, with that emotion and that energy. And I never did that with my, with my dad. I and mean, we got to a really good place. He, and he loves my wife, Catherine and, but um, that was, I, I believe that was really, really hard for him in ways I still, I didn't know. Yeah, Kate, you mentioned being 21 at that point. And, you know, at, at that age, all of us are still figuring ourselves out in so many ways. You look at, you know, where we are now in 2021, do you think that being able to come out and talk to you, uh, people th- that age can talk to their parents maybe in a different way than we, the parents, you know, parents and children interacted almost 20 years ago. I have to believe in everybody in my world who is of that age or when, when I have connected with like athletic departments or high schools with kids and we talk about this issue, I don't think I'm being Pollyannish and saying that it's a whole new world in this regard. That's not to say that there aren't, parts of this country or families in which kids can still feel that they can't speak openly. But I mean, even just simply being pride month and it's like, you, you can't be a brand now and not be talking about pride month and be taken seriously. I mean, that's, that was not, that was not happening in 2003. Like that. I, in fact, I remember, it might not have been 2003, but it was really close to 2003 when SNL, did a skit called the women's basketball coaches fashion show. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine, I don't know if either of you remember this. skit. I vaguely remember that. I vaguely remember that. You can imagine what the fashion choices were for the uh, division one women's college basketball coaches. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the impl- implicit, at least I was inferring when I was watching this, that they were all lesbians and that's what the SNL skit was kind of about. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in a room with people who were fellow basketball players and part of the basketball community. And it was clear then that you were not, it was not going to be an okay thing or a cool thing if you were gay. And I just don't think that that is the overall messaging of our world anymore. Right. And one of the things that I, I really appreciate about the way that you write about and just talked about, um, you know, kind of your process of coming out and not really having that overt conversation with your dad is that, I mean, I think for better or worse, we get a lot of, you know, really kind of uplifting and heartwarming narratives, especially during Pride Month about these coming out stories. Um, But more often than not, they don't happen in this kind of Hollywood scripted way. Um, And I think the messiness of it and the I guess uncertainty or unanswered questions is a part of this that we never really talk about as explicitly as we do the more concrete stuff. Um, and that's important because I think that a lot of people out there might have similar feelings as you did that, you know, this wasn't how maybe um, they envisioned <laughs> this conversation going. Um, 
and that there is no universal kind of experience of, of what this, of what that process is like. Yeah. And there was, a, I mean, there was a number of things in the book that I wanted to be as honest as possible about. And my coming out process was one, was one of those things because you you can't create a scene for my coming out process because it would be an eight year long movie, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and that is not something that I think we get messaged very much. And another thing that in this book is how I thought caretaking would go or how I thought my dad should behave facing the end of life. I mean, these are all things that like the messaging are, that we get are, oh, like if you're facing the end of the life, the goal should be to be philosophical and at peace. It, how, and how often do people really reach that? I don't think that often. And so it was important to me in the book to be really honest about the ways in which my dad still had anger and bitterness, because that's not often in a book, you're not really seeing that. And so then there, there are so many people who then think going forward when they're dealing with a loved one at the end of life, they want them to be like a Buddha. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not often happening. And in the same way, I think, you know, the messaging around coming out is like, I think every so many people I know, it's like, they're still in it. Even if they're almost 40 now, they're still dealing with every iteration of it. Cause every time, you know, you can come out, but then it's like, okay, well, what if then you want to that? And then your parents are okay with that, but okay. What if you want to get married? That's a completely different, that's another level of processing that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And there are so many levels of processing when it comes to, coming out in our culture that it's not, it's not one joyous moment. It's usually like a long process of like every conversation and the dynamics. If you want to have kids, if you're getting married, if you're the first time going to a wedding with your partner, like these are all layers of coming out. You know, when you you talk about the things that you write about in the book, honestly, that aren't how we tend to envision or picture them and specifically about kind of the end of life phase. I mean, that was so impactful for me um, to read you being that honest, both in that, you know, like you said, when someone's at the end of, of their life, we have all of these notions about letting go of anger and letting go of bitterness and being mm-hmm. at peace, as you said. And I think on the, the other side of it for the, the, the family, for the caretakers, there's this kind of Florence Nightingale image of what it, it means to be the daughter who's taking care of her dad, yeah. right? Um, yeah. how, what are the ways in which your actual experience kind of defied those, those notions? In almost every way. Mm. Um, there certainly there were, there was the moments that I think when people, at least when I was going into this, when I left ESPN and I decided that I, that I wanted to prioritize being with my dad and helping my mom, I guess I pictured, and I kind of referenced this in the book, I guess I pictured like peaceful evenings in the house where we're like telling stories and, and, you know, helping my daddy chicken noodle soup. Right. I, I don't know. Right. I, I think that there's some sort of uh, calm peacefulness that we think instead it was, it, it was a grueling, relentless list of insurance requests and sleepless nights and target runs and like physically, emotionally demanding in a way that, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. And I think we don't talk about that caretaking and 
what it really looks like very much in our culture because it's, you know, it, who wants to think about it? It's like, Oh, that's the thing that happens to you over there at some point in your life. Possibly Mm -hmm. let's not, let's not talk about it or think about it. So that was one piece that was pretty eye opening, um, especially watching my mom go through it. And, and then the the main piece for me was, I had, I guess my reference points before I left ESPN, my, my reference points was seriously maybe Tuesdays with Maury, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. and in that, it, it, Maury is incredibly generous and philosophical and there's not, and that doesn't mean that Maury didn't have bitterness, but Mitch Album, the author of that, didn't, necess- didn't write anything about that part of his experience if he did experience it. And it really affected my relationship. This idea I had in my mind of the goal for my dad really affected my relationship with my dad in that last year because I would become really frustrated with him, borderline angry when he'd say something that made it clear that he was bitter or angry. Mm-hmm. And that's not I knew at the time I wasn't being fair, but I was like, well, if everywhere I'm reading, everything I'm seeing shows me the last year of someone's life, them working to achieve some level of introspection and peace and philosophy, why isn't my dad doing this? And I think the truth of it is, at least now on the backside of it and and talking to so many families and people is that the anomaly is the messaging we got on the front end. Like that is the, that is the unique situation. Like Maury is the unique situation in this and the bitterness and anger coming through at times is the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And so when I was writing this book, it was really important to me that I didn't perpetuate the myth that my dad was like the greatest dad who ever lived and then handled ALS like a superhero warrior with peace and love in his heart. Like I, I, I purposely wanted to avoid that at every turn that I could, because I didn't want people reading this and going forward and thinking, well, okay, that's apparently how people are at the end of their lives. Yeah. But how did you manage your feelings? You talked about, you know, just borderline being angry, just that last year, just how tough was it for you to manage your own emotions, especially when you're around your dad and understanding what he's dealing with and maybe not wanting to put your anger or your feelings onto him given that he's the one battling ALS and you're there to help him? I didn't handle it. Well, I don't know if it was well or not. I guess that's a subjective judgment. But these weren't internal thoughts Mm -hmm. that if he said something exhibiting, you know, bitterness, right? Like Mm -hmm. Like a why me kind of attitude. I, it wasn't an internal thought where I was like, ugh, I wish you wouldn't do that. I would actually say aloud, like, dad, is that really the right way to think about this? Or like, I would, I would, I would challenge him. And that was, that was a defining characteristic of our relationship because I had, we'd grown up playing one-on-one. We were very much alike and we'd always kind of been in this competition. And, and with that came a lot of love and connection, but it also meant that we were very easy to fall into uh, a, a competitive dialogue with each other, even before he got sick. So, so Jason, I would actually, and I don't know if I was right or wrong. I think I was wrong in retrospect because for lots of reasons, but one, because you can't make somebody peaceful and philosophical. Like you, it's, it's like getting somebody to, to rehab. They, they, it has to be something that they're ready for in their life. And so I would actually just say, and he, I would say like, dad, that's ridiculous. Like you sound like an asshole. And he would say, 
he would say, you have no idea what this is like. And we would kind of end it there. But, um, but I, I guess at the time I thought I was trying to get him to a better mental state, but in retrospect, I, I do recognize now that you can't do that for someone. It, it's like so many things in life. Like he has to come, he has to come to that belief and certain things on his own. What kind of reaction have you gotten from readers, um, particularly readers who have dealt with family members who have had ALS or just family members um, toward the end of their life? Have you, you know, it seems like you did very much write this with a readership in mind that you wanted to be completely honest to. Um, have, have they responded to that for the most part? Yeah, I, I think if you, if you told me, I, I think this book is universal in that, you know, it, and any, everybody has relationships in their lives that have gotten frayed and you think about how to restore them. And I think that's the heart of the book is through these life lessons of basketball. And in my particular situation with my dad, I'm showing you how we, how our relationship got frayed and how we resolved it at the end. So I think there's a universality there, but very specifically, I was writing this for members of the ALS community. Mm because it it's a you know it, every disease has its own challenges and ALS being one that's 100% fatal with the kind of debilitating nature that that happens and you know for listeners who aren't familiar with ALS because there's actually still I think it, the latest data has showed it's like 60% of people still don't know exactly what ALS is um, so it's a, so, so ALS is this gradual shutting down of your body's muscles. And first it might be, you know, it, it starts differently for everybody, but hands, arms, legs, and included in the body's muscles are the, the, the swallowing mechanism, your lungs, and then eventually your heart. And so I was writing this, I would say for the ALS community, because I don't think there has been a very clear story told mm -hmm. about the cruelty and the decision-making as a family at the end of life and these questions about life extending procedures, but the burden of ALS, because it's, you know, it's a lot, it's a, it's a locked in syndrome. So like the caretaking that's involved is, mm -hmm. is next level for a disease. So in the response from that community, and, and this was, I was a little worried because I am, I try to be very transparent in the book at my thinking at various points and our thinking as a family. Mm -hmm. So there's a moment in the book where I actually tell my dad that I don't, that I, that I think he should make the decision to die. And that was hard for me to write because I, I think I sound, I, I think some people could think I sound like a monster in that scene mm -hmm. because I, I don't know. I, I thought it, I said it and I have to just trust that, I'm a decent person. Therefore I'm thinking it and saying it. Other people have thought this and said this before, but we need stories out there. So other families, whether it's ALS or other diseases, and like you're having these conversations and you don't want to think I'm a monster. No one's ever thought this or said this before. You want to, you want to know that like families are dealing with this stuff and these are really hard conversations and painful, cruel conversations, but you're not a monster. And that was really that that part of the book is very much for the ALS community. And I imagine, you know, a lot of people will say you, you'll read things like you said, Hollywood will say, well, 
there we want our family member to be at peace or you know we want we don't want to see them suffer anymore I, I just can imagine that in that moment when you said that that had to hurt you as much as well just to even be able to have to utter those words and see your father going through that well that it's a painful kind of conclusion to come to in your mind to say to even get to that point oh yeah i mean because hopefully for anyone who does pick up this book it's a love letter to my dad like he is my he's you know well my wife is here so she's not my favorite person but he was really up he was one of my top three favorite people in this world and so for me to get to a point where I'm actually having a conversation with him, where I'm telling him, no, I don't want you to get this life extending procedure. I think that you should choose hospice and we should, you know, do this as a family. That was, I mean, I, I still, I still don't know whether that was selfish or selfless or brave or cowardly. Like, and I think that we think that, you should be able, I mean, those seem like radically different poles, right? Or have you been a coward or have you been brave? And I think there are moments in life where that is a razor thin mm-hmm. <laughs> equation that you're processing because I still don't know because part of me feels like I was driven by the quality of life I wanted restored in my own life, in my mom's life and feeling like my dad was no longer capable of seeing the full equation. And I think uh, and that was brutal. And it, but I wanted to write about it because it made me feel better to write about it. And I think that those lines between selfish and selfless are way, way thinner in these moments in life than, than we give them credit for. Yeah, none of none of these things exist on a true binary. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> For our listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you talk about the book's title, All the Colors Came Out? It's a U2 lyric and yes. um, the significance there for you and your dad. Yeah. So my my dad, he wasn't a huge music guy, but he had like a handful of albums he loved and songs he loved. And surprisingly, at least surprisingly to me, having known him, but, you know, before he got sick, we would, uh, he, they had OK Google. So they had a little Google machine that you could speak to. Um, uh, wow, I sound like I'm a, uh, I'm like anti-technology right there. Um, but they had OK Google. And pretty much every morning he would, and when we were younger, before Google, he would put the CD in, but he would play Beautiful Day by U2. And there was a couple other songs that he would always play. or And at his funeral, Beautiful Day was one of four songs on, um, you know, on the on the CD with all the photos that that you play uh, at a wake. And uh, when we were trying to title this book, I really I don't know if either of you ever read the book When Breath Becomes Air. Mm-hmm. It was about a it was about a, a surgeon who died of cancer, and he had written this book, and then his his wife had finished it for him. And I thought there was something so beautiful in that title. And I wanted something like it that was both uh, airy and open-ended and made you think of the world as opposed to like very, um, very honed in on our specific stories. And I thought, so I, I was looking through the lyrics when we were trying to title the book. I was looking through the lyrics of all his, his favorite songs. A lot of Springsteen songs came that I that I looked through and then I looked through all 
U2 and there's this line at the end where it says, uh, the, the line before it talks about birds. My dad loved birds. And then the line is, after the flood, all the colors came out. And I thought that was really appropriate because I think part of this book is about the devastation of something like ALS, but also the beauty that can be found in it. In if you are lucky enough to have someone like my dad who was willing to be vulnerable at the end with me. And despite all of the pain and the mistakes we'd made along the way and the terribleness that is ALS, that there was this, this joy and beauty in it for, for me, I think maybe he would agree now. I'm not sure if he would have agreed at the time, I think he would have just wanted it all to go away, but that was very much my experience of it. That's a deep, <laughs> I mean, that did when you think <laughs> about, you know, the, the lyric and using it that way and the talking about joy and seeing, because when I, when I see the title, I think joy. I mean, the story itself, you don't think of it as being a joyful experience at all, but when you look back now, just what, what I don't know if it's a positive, but what did you, what joy or yeah. did you take from that entire, this entire experience and then going back and writing about it to where we are now? Well, the cover itself yeah. is very joyful, right? It's very, it's very colorful. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a celebration of your dad. Yeah. And I think that's that you know, we have talked a lot of, um, on this pod about, you know, the messaging and the, that we get as a culture. And yes, this is a book where my dad has ALS and he dies of ALS, but death doesn't inherently mean that it's going to be sad and a downer and devastating. And I think that that is, that is part of what I think needs to change about how we talk about death Mm. because we, we, it seems like it's something that we're always trying to avoid talking about. And if we're trying to avoid it, it must be because it's scary and bad. And the book isn't like that. At least I hope it isn't like that. The book is, it is joyful. It's joyful because a lot of the things I learned along the way, like the fact that I had a dad, first of all, there's joy and beauty in that. And then one that loved me and wanted to spend time with me. That's something to be grateful and lucky for. And then someone who at the end, I was able to be able to restore that relationship to, you know, its previous iterations and glory. That's something to be grateful for. And in that process of all of, of the, the gratitude and, and in some cases, just pure luck that I had along the way to be able to make these decisions. I, I, I do believe if anyone picks up this book, hopefully they look at, where their life is and the person in their relationship in their life who this book makes them think of that. Hey, like, yeah, that, that relationship, I've always known it could be more. We had that one thing that we didn't talk about. Like these are things that I think we all have in our lives. And we just figure that like the universal let us know when we need to fix it and doesn't work that way. And I think, uh, any reminder we can have of that, that the joy and beauty of life is, is in the hardest moments, which is now kind of a cliche, I think is really important, especially in the sports world, I think, because there's not a lot of ease, ease of vulnerability or discussion mm-hmm. of, of death. It's all, it, there's just so much like strength and avoidance and, 
and and conquering and we want to talk about championships and and heroes and all that and that's all part of sports but i think sometimes when when we live in the sports world it's almost like death is something that we can't really look at and i for me and for my dad that that existed until the end and until this disease when we had to we had to get rid of that that whole like no surrender we can't be weak that that doesn't carry you all the way to the end and i think that's something the sports world needs to reckon with how has the sports world responded to the book? Did some of your friends and, you know, maybe former teammates, just people in the sports world responded because, as you said, the sports world is a world where we're taught from, you know, peewee age. You don't show weakness. You don't show vulnerability. I mean, I'm thinking even this, this, this week where Giannis Anacumpo says that Kevin Durant is the best player in the world, and people called him weak for saying that. Like you can't yeah. let him, <laughs> that, that whole idea, you can't give him an edge. <laughs> just what's it been like just from people in the sports world, you know, both of you are, you know, father, daughter, division one athlete. So you've both been, you know, heavily involved in that culture. Yeah. I think that the book is in this weird place where I think it's, it needs time because people need to find it when they need it. Because it's not the kind of book I would have sought out when I was 25 in advance of understanding how I wanted to live. I think it's the kind of book that needs that people will find when when someone recommends it to them at the right moment, Um, because I don't think it's it's not an easy pitch in the sports world because we want it's it's a safe haven. Often we see and this is a conversation we have all the time about political commentary and social stances and politics in the sports world, because we want our sports world to be this safe place. And I think that extends to this as well, where it's, it's, we want it to be a thing that we do. That's a distraction and joy. And how can that possibly exist if we're having a conversation about, you know, death and decay. And so I think, so that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that the ALS did have a bit of a moment in the sports world. I think last week with Lou Gehrig's day, uh, well, two weeks ago, Lou Gehrig's day, the inaugural uh, LG four day in major league baseball. And I think people more so starting to understand what this disease is and how the sports world can have a unique place in hoping to find a cure for this disease, because it's a disease named after one of the most famous baseball players in history. And so I think that is a place where the where the book can connect too, because there aren't a lot of sports is involved in a lot of fundraising and charity. But this is one particular endeavor where like the sports world itself, because of the origin and, and Lou Gehrig can actually become the place where we we set our feet and someday find a cure for this thing. And that would and I think sports is the only place where we could do that with this disease, because I think it's it, it hits athletes more. It hits military members more, but I also think the sports world can be, can be the fix for it too. Right. Well, Kate, I just have one more question and I'm asking this mostly because this is a question that my co-author and I have been asked in every book interview that we've done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what, what was it like for you to go through the, the publishing process during a pandemic? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I don't, know how different it would have been pre-pandemic versus doing releasing a book in a pandemic because I think the nature of the book is both 
universal and that I think most people can relate to it. Mm-hmm. But on a very specific level, like why talk about the book on May 12th versus mm-hmm. September 15th? Like there was no real reason. I mean, you have Father's Day now, so that's a good news hook. But the book seems to me to be the kind of book that you introduce into the world and people who read it hopefully love it and share it versus that that publishing release of like, I want to do a tour and I want to get media hits. I don't mm-hmm. think it was ever going to be that kind of book for all the reasons we've talked about here. Like, you know, we've spent an hour here and I think we're just scratching the surface of, you know, conversations around sports and death and vulnerability and success culture. It was always in my mind going to be the kind of book that like wasn't meant for a news hit. Mm-hmm. And so pre or post pandemic, that would have been the reality of it. Right. Yeah. Just one, I got one last one for you, Kate. Uh, just after writing a book like this, where do you go next? I mean, this is a, a very personal story. You know, do you, do you want to get completely away from kind of the introspective personal storytelling? You know, what do you do? Where do you go from, uh, from this point? Yeah. Well, Thanks for that, Jason, because I think one of the one of the tangential reasons I I left ESPN, like the, the driving reason was my dad. But part of it was just no longer feeling like I could make change in the world in the way I wanted to. And in that particular way, I meant like writing about female athletes, writing about women's sports, feeling like that kind of storytelling was both going to be supported and championed in the way I wanted it. And I think coming out of writing this book, I, because I've left a place like ESPN and I feel like I still have my feet under me, I was like, well, I don't need to give up what I care about anymore. Right? I don't need to just be like, okay, I'll sell out. I'll talk about LeBron. Just pay me some money. It's fine. I don't need to do that anymore. Cause I, it's like, I know at least I've, I've come to this place where I'm like, well, no, I've, I've done some hard things now and I, I have my priorities in order. And like, if I'm going to invest like time and attention in things, I want it to be this small little corner of the world that I can change, which um, leads me to the long answer in that. Like, so I, I do want to do that. And I, and I am going to start doing it with Meadowlark mm-hmm. and just feel like that's supported. And not that it wasn't supported at ESPN, but I think when you get into a big company, you can get lost really easy. And it takes, you know, it's like, you know, you know, shifting the Titanic or whatever that saying is, whereas like being a part of a, a startup company lets you like really make a change and hopefully just be nimble and tell these stories in a moment that I think the world is ready for them. One well, and, and reuniting with Levitard and Skipper is never a bad thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, if you can, uh, if you can be on the same team as John Skipper, mm-hmm. I think you're, you know, you got, you got a fighting chance in this corporate, you know, sales world of ours. Yeah, for sure. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this very raw and honest conversation and for this beautiful and heartbreaking and some in many ways uplifting book that, you know, I think is starting a lot of conversations that are so necessary in the way that we talk about these relationships and um, and death in this country are not always the most nuanced. And you've definitely um, introduced a lot of nuance in here. I think that a lot of people, um, the book will resonate with a lot of a lot of people. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate this book so much. Yeah, thanks to you both for having me on. I, I really appreciate you guys even spotlighting and chatting about the book. It's it's meaningful to me. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks, Jason.
Thank you for joining us on Culture Calculus. I'm Jason Jones for The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a rating and check back every Thursday for the latest episode of Culture Calculus.